one person that said, thank you, I wasn't talking about your singing. <laughs> nope, I wasn't. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know who said it. I'm not even looking in that general direction in case I do recognize and the whole thing's not a joke anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, we have done... Uh, for a long time now, this church has done a lot of uh, funerals. We've been in a lot of memorial services. We've done a lot of graveside services. And uh, over the many years, one thing that always sticks with me is the tone or the temperature, if you will, of the environment. You know, when we're, when we're in a room like this or any other room at the uh, funeral home or something like that, you sense there's this palpable uh, interaction you have with the family or the friends that are left behind if the deceased has lived a good life. And I don't mean good as in just being a good person. I mean like one that counted, a life that made an impact, a life that left a legacy and you sense that loss and that void when that person's no longer there. And then in other times, if I'm being honest, there are times where I'm like, did they even know who this person was? Because there's very little to say, uh, more than just the stage fright of like speaking up and, and having to talk in front of people. But pe- you could just see it on people's minds like, what, what am I supposed to say? We can't speak ill of the dead. Got to come up with something, you know. John so-and-so loved flowers. He had that going for him, you know. So in those days, you walk out of those services and you feel this heaviness. And you feel this overwhelming responsibility. I'm going back home to a family and you start to think about what legacy am I leaving? Not, not because I envision someday my funeral being full of wild praises and all these kinds of things and giant compliments, but, but to think about what kind of an impact am I having on those that I leave behind? Shakespeare famously said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. Now, we live in a social media context, and so this is going to sound a little bit weird. But when I say our lives are seen by others, whether we wish it or not, we'd say, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Most of our lives are seen too much by other people. Not everybody cares about what toppings you had on your pizza, yet somehow Instagram's made a billion dollars figuring out that you want to share it, right? But our lives are seen by others, and when I say whether we wish it or not, the question is, what do they see? One guy in Cleveland left his mark on his family and his friends, and so much so that it showed up in his obituary after he passed. Scott Estenminger was an Ohio man through and through. He was born and raised in the Buckeye State, and it goes without saying, he was a diehard fan of the Cleveland Browns. Appropriate choice for today, especially as we're talking about someone's demise. I'm going to keep... We Patriots fans are getting a little arrogant, aren't we? I'm starting to feel it, like I sense it now. As I say it out loud, I know what it sounds like now. Okay, I got it. His obituary tribute, originally published in the Columbus Dispatch in July of 2013, detailed his lifetime of fandom for the football team. He wrote a song each year and sent it to the Cleveland Browns, as well as offering other advice on how to run the team. But like most relationships, Scott's connection with the Cleveland Browns was not without its fair share of disappointments. His family included his one final wish for his bodily remains. He respectfully requests six Cleveland Browns pallbearers so the Browns can let him down one last time. (laughs) 
Again, in New England, we don't know what they're talking about, right? I don't know. The zinger did get the attention of the team who disappointed their number one fan. At his funeral, the team honored Scott's family with a Cleveland Browns jersey bearing the name of the deceased fan as well as number 76, the number of Scott's favorite Browns Hall of Famer, Lou Groza. So, that's a man who left his mark on those around him. Those that knew him best knew what he cared about, knew what he didn't. At the heart of the life of the believer needs to be the desire for it all to matter. A life lived by my own design or my own wishes is one of emptiness. And this has been proven to us over and over and over again by those that have, quote unquote, crossed the other side. They've landed in the territory that we often dream about, about success or fame or popularity or those kinds of earthly securities. And then they shout back to us from the other side, you know, the, uh, the way the other half live. And they say, it's not really panning out the way I thought it would. It's not filling that inner uh, desire or filling that inner void like I thought it would. And no matter how many times we hear those stories, we still think, well, those are the kinds of problems I'd like to have, though. It doesn't quite sink in. But a life of purpose and fulfillment, you hear those two things, can only be found in the embracing of the role that God has given you and I to play in his grand play. So why does this matter? Why are we using this to set up our time in 2 Corinthians? It's because you and I have said it before. You and I tend towards isolation. You and I were born in our independence or our wishful independence. There's not a lot of independence a baby can have, but yet somehow we feel like we rule the roost. Mom and dad come when I cry. You and I will not naturally live, that is by our own devices, our own schemes, our own ideas. We will not naturally live a life bigger than our own definition. So we must find that path for our lives in the one who designed it. So here's a statement I would like for you to take with you. It's in your notes, some version of it at least. If you and I are going to live a satisfying life, that is one that we recognize and we would be able to at the end of the day go, i feel pretty good about the way this life is going. We will have to learn how to live for God. You've heard preachers say this forever, but before others. And this is the part I want us to ponder this morning because so often we come into church, you're going to tell me how to live for Jesus more. And I am definitely going to try to do that. But part of the equation is you and I don't live well before God. We don't live well for God unless we're willing to live before other people. So we want to define what that is. We want to talk about how Paul himself did it. Because when we come to our text in First Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians 6, we're getting towards the end of a, of a portion of Paul's text. For the first seven chapters, what Paul is doing here is he's working towards reconciling his relationship with these punky Corinthians who were looking at him in all the wrong measurements. We've talked about this week after week. And so now he's getting to the point where he's wrapping up this, this section of, of having this conversation with those, with those children in the faith, the ones that he's led to Christ, the ones that he built the church with. And he's basically saying, so are we good? It's taken him seven chapters to help them understand that their eyes are in the wrong place, that they were evaluating the wrong things, that they were looking from him for things that, that he had no intention of ever providing and he wasn't called to provide those things. And so Paul is basically saying to the church, and he's wrapping up this time in another chapter or so, are we good? Can we 
finally move on and get back to the business of the ministry. And this business of the ministry he gets into for a couple of chapters in 8 and 9. He starts to bring their hearts and minds back to what he was originally approaching them for. And that was to raise up a collection for the needy in the other areas of ministry that he was serving in. So he wants to get them back because we've been so distracted with this people drama. And that's what's interesting about church. I don't know if you've looked around, but we're all made up of people. And because of that, we bring our own stuff. It's very simple. The the gospel, the message, the mission of the church, it's laid out pretty clearly, but it's so hard to get it done. We kind of are bumping into each other all the time instead of it just being like, hey, why don't we all show up, kumbaya, and get this whole thing called turning the world upside down? Why don't we just get it done? Well, it's difficult for us to do because we are who we are. And it's important for us to remember that that is what God knew would happen from the get-go and still instituted the church and still said, that's going to be the institution that I'm going to turn the world upside down using. So God knew you and I would have our stuff in the middle of this room, that we'd have our shortcomings, that we'd have to say I'm sorry to each other and offer forgiveness. We'd have to work through the weird personality quirks that we all offer. God knew all those things would be a part of the mix. And yet chose to work in it anyway. So the grace that we were singing about, the grace that we were talking about and reading about, that's what it's for. So in a sense, this whole thing is the work of the ministry. This is what we're to be about. So Paul is taking a lot of time, the majority of this letter, to do that kind of work, to show grace to his to his kids in the faith, to, to show forgiveness, to show reconciliation towards those that he cares about. And so after he hits them back up for the collection, he's going to start doing business with the, the, uh, the root of the infection. He's going to start setting his sights in the, the midst of that church to the people that were going around whispering. This Paul guy is not all he's cracked up to be. He doesn't even have the same credentials that you think he should, all this kind of stuff. Do we really even know what he's really doing with the money that he's collecting? I mean, has anybody checked the books? There's this little whisper campaign that we've alluded to. So Paul is going to set his sights on them and imagine what they're going to be feeling like as this letter is read publicly. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. Come around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we good. Yeah, this sounds great. Hey, oh yeah, that's right. He was talking about money. I guess we got to empty out our pockets. You ready? Ooh, this is getting uncomfortable for a few of you in the room because he's calling things out and everybody knows who was doing it, who was starting it. This is where this letter is going. So as we're wrapping up this part of the of the letter, he's basically saying, so are we good? Are we ready to go? And I've got my notes all out of, all askew. Give me a second. Oh, that's what I was talking about. Okay. It's a good thing I did one of these already this morning. Paul took the time to set the record straight. Let me just ask you real quickly here so that we can get into our text. Paul had been given a platform. Yes, he was called by the Lord. He had the authority to speak the things that he was speaking. But if you and I were given the platform, if you and I were given the opportunity to respond to our detractors, the people who are questioning our motives, the people who aren't sure that we're doing things the right way. I mean, if you've lived around people at all, everyone's judging everything, right? If you had the opportunity to set the record straight, would you use that opportunity for some self-justification? Kind of that posture of you won't have me to kick around forever. And this is why I did that. And this is just to shame people. Or would you take the route that Paul took, 
which was in an effort to bring the ignorant, to bring the misunderstanding folks that he cared about up to a level of understanding and reconciliation that he could still work with. Paul wasn't done with this church by any means. He wanted to get back into it. He wanted to restore that relationship because Paul's driving ambition was to please God by being spent for other people. So hear that this morning. Second Corinthians chapter six, we're going to start in verse three. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple of verses, basically a verse and a half out of the New Living Translation. Um, and then I'm going to go back to my typical text, which is the English Standard Version. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible and you want to start bringing it to church or you've been bringing it to church, I try to give you some uh, location as to where we're going to be for your notes and things like that. So I just wanted you to know that the first uh, section may not sound like the Bible that you're reading. He says in verse three. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. Now, honestly, as I read this, I'm instantly convicted. This is such a lofty, huge statement to make. It doesn't surprise me so much from the standpoint of we just got out of chapter five where Paul says a judgment day is coming and I intend to be ready for that meeting. I intend to have so many things on the altar that it's going to pass the test, if you will, that God will say, you spent your life to give me glory. And in that I'm, I'm well pleased. So it doesn't surprise me so much that it comes on the heels of that. But what convicts me is the fact that he's even able to say it. Let's break it down for just a second. We live in such a way so that no one will stumble. In other words, if they were to say to you, Jane Q or John Q or somebody like that, I want to follow everything you're doing. I want the book on your life. I want the videotape that follows you around. I want to copy everything you're doing because I want to see if Christ is living in you. Would you be able to say, have at it, man. I have nothing to hide. I've been living... Uh, Pretty remarkable example of all this, if I may be so honest with you. Paul says, this has been my motive and my ambition ever since Christ rescued my heart. That I live in such a way that I don't expect anybody to stumble if they were to watch me. And no one will find fault with our ministry. It's pretty confident. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. As we get into our text this morning, if you're following along with your notes, especially of several directives that I think Paul might be uh, encouraging us to to apply this week. First is to endure troubles well. Let's continue in verse four. Again, I'm switching my translation, going back to the English Standard Version. He says, by great endurance. Endurance through what? In what? In afflictions in hardships, in calamities. He's, he's starting off this list by giving these, these general things that he was running into as part of his calling as an apostle, but, but things that we could also say as part of living in this fallen world. I'm running into afflictions. Nothing seems to go easy. I get the hangnail, the car breaks down, all those kinds of things. Those are these afflictions, these hardships. I get flat-out tragedies or calamities that come into my life. But I've learned to endure these troubles well. I add the word well because there's a lot of people that are enduring just by simply hanging on. And that's a part of it. 
Sometimes we are white knuckling it. Sometimes we're just gripping. But to endure well is the legacy that Paul is trying to leave behind. And so these calamities have come and he's not taken off guard by these things. He's not acting shocked. No doubt he would have known what Jesus would have said. John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. But in the world, all that stuff out there, those general troubles that Paul was talking about, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It doesn't win. Those are the troubles that Paul is referring to. He continues this list of of outside troubles, the things that were done to him by others with malicious intent, these beatings, imprisonments, riots. He wasn't just rejected. There were campaigns against him. It's one thing if people dismiss your message and you kind of slip off into obscurity, but there were people saying, we can't let this stand. We can't let this guy succeed. So there's riots in the streets and things are going haywire. I like how Pastor Gary used the phrase that no doubt they probably talked about with the teens and dare to share. It was persecution university. And uh, most likely Paul is giving us a glimpse into one of his classes in his major when he talks about the beatings, the imprisonments and the riots. But then there are some self-inflicted troubles that he confesses. And these aren't uh, troubles as a result of sin, but because of the effort and the work of him fulfilling his calling. He says, there are labors that I'm enduring through. The work is hard. Wearing myself to the bone, maybe literally and figuratively. I'm losing sleep over this ministry. I'm enduring through the, the fact that I just don't have all the comforts that I would perhaps in my other life like to have because of the demands on me of this ministry. And I even miss some meals as a result of it, he says, in hunger. That these are real troubles that Paul is living on display saying, I am enduring these things well for you. But you don't endure these things well without having some uh, stake in the game, without having some draw, some pull for it to go uh, well all the way to the end. So the second thing I'd like us to consider is to pursue purity passionately. I alliterated so you'd remember. You know, sometimes I think that preachers, the only way that we can make things applicable is through uh, the alliteration of things, but no, it's not. Pursue purity passionately. This is what he says in verse six, by purity or in my purity, I had knowledge, patience, kindness. Those all sound like pure things. The Holy Spirit, it's a little bit weird to throw that in there. We'll get there in a second. Genuine love. I love the underscoring here of genuine, that it's a love that is giving and sacrificial, not just a love that that is self-serving and one that is of a consumer mindset, but genuine love. Speaking truth and the power of God. So in the midst of this list of inner graces, he says, in my purity, I, I grew in my knowledge. I exercise great patience. You have to if you're in Paul's shoes. And and in that patience, he was able to respond with kindness to the people that were, you might remember months ago that we referred to Paul almost, I, I, I pictured him in this kind of pitiful state with these Corinthian believers of being like the person who was invited to the prom, but to only show up with lesser clothes, no date, and to get laughed out of the gym. Be like, who do you think you are? 
and the humiliation that most of us would have felt and experienced with that, to have all of that brought on Paul and to, to, to be patient in it with them and their ignorance and their naivete, and then to respond in kindness. And then in the midst of this list, he mentions the person of the Holy Spirit. So we've got knowledge, patience, all these things that we can do, things that we can emulate, things that people might say well of us. He's a very patient person. But in the midst of it, I think the reason why he plants the phrase, the Holy Spirit, is to point that this list is not a list of Paul's inner virtues, the things that Paul could mistakenly get credit for because he's a good guy. He's pointing to its source. All of these things, these inner graces are the result of the Holy Spirit being present in my life. Living this life out of me, I get to be the vessel. So we just got done saying that we need to endure well. And there's no shortage of marketing in this life for endurance, right? We've got the sports drinks. We've got sneakers. We've got everything screaming, endure, push through, succeed. And so what happens in the human heart is we actually do some of those things. We, we finish that extra mile. We climb that corporate ladder. We do those things. And then who gets the credit? Me. So that when Paul says that this is a result of the presence of the Holy Spirit, it balances out that potential ego boost that somehow thinks that all of my accomplishments will last, that they won't just all burn up, as Paul talked about in that judgment seat. Instead, what the light, what, what the Holy Spirit does is, is balances out this, this endurance that makes it into something that's actually sweet. It's the kind of thing you and I could be around. If the person is, that, that we're seeing going through the suffering is enduring, but they're enduring in the Holy Spirit, we actually want to build them up. We want to supply their need. We want to, we want to run to their side. But sometimes we've seen the opposite. Sometimes we've seen the ego coming out that I'm victorious. I'm winning. This thing can't beat me. It's harder to encourage that. So I said to you, I think the reason why that we have to pursue this purity passionately is because we have to see the end. We have to have, keep the end in mind. Paul was so convicted that his life should burn before men, that he was fueled to grow in grace by being patient and kind towards these people. And, and this passion is dripping off of him when we jump down into our text. So we're going to skip a few verses and go down to verse 11, and we'll come back and cover the other ones at the end. Verse 11, Paul says, we've spoken freely to you. In other words, we've been very truthful with you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Our chest is laid bare. We haven't manipulated the conversation. We haven't held things back from you that we didn't think you were ready for or anything. We just decided if this thing's going to heal, if we're going to reconcile, we're putting it all out there. So he says, this is how I've approached you as a church. You're not restricted by us, he says. In other words, if there's any friction, if there's any distance in the relationship, it's not on my end. It's on yours. He says, you're restricted in your own affections. I love the way that that word was translated. Affections is such a rich word for us to think about this because Paul has been trying to redirect the affections of the Corinthian believers ever since he wrote 1 Corinthians. Their affections were drawing them towards worldly things, towards fleshly things outside of the kingdom of God. And, and Paul is saying, if there's any distance, any friction here, it's because of the things you love. 
It's because of the things that you'd sacrifice your time, your money, your efforts towards and everything. So the reason why we're not seeing eye to eye, the reason why we're no longer warm and fuzzy with each other is because your heart has drawn you away. Here's the passion coming from Paul in verse 13. In return, I speak as to, could be translated here, my children. I speak as to my children. Do the same back. You can trust me. Open your heart. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me where your hang-ups are. Tell me what your fears are. We can work through this. Be willing to receive. You know, so many people are thinking, because reconciliation, one of the key elements of reconciliation is honesty. Some people are like, I have no problem being honest about all the things you've done to me. We balance that out. In Ephesians 4, the Bible talks to us about guarding our, our protecting our speech and making sure that we are using words timely and in a way that builds others up. So yes, while we are reconciling, we want to pursue truth, but we do so in such a way that helps the other person, not just gets a bunch of things off your chest. And for another thing, the other thing you need to know about why I'm mad and all these kinds of things. This isn't what Paul is talking about. Paul is pursuing a reconciliation. It says, we've told you everything we can think that you needed to hear. And you know what? We're willing to take it back. You have our undivided attention. Speak to me. Can you imagine what would happen in our relationships if the reciprocation was welcomed? If it wasn't just, no, no, you sit and you listen. I got some things to get dealt with here. Instead, it's like, now that I've spoken my piece, I need to hear from you. We're, we're not going to come back and write third Corinthians. We're getting this done now is what he's saying. And too much of our communication, our relationships, sweeping things under the rug because we feel better about the way things have gone this week or last month or over the last year. I don't want to rock the boat. And it's like this, this kind of growing monster that's waiting to come out. And scare everybody in sight. He says, we've spoken freely to you. And in return, widen your hearts also. Faithful endurance is the greatest testimony that you and I can live before other people. Someone's even said it's the most eloquent ad for the gospel. And I think that that is true. But you can't endure faithfully without a passion for the end result. It mattered more to Paul that he would be reconciled to these folks than just they would save the reputation in the town. We can't watch this whole thing go wonky. So you and I, we've got to get our stuff right so people don't think we're weird. He cared more about the hearts of the individuals involved. Thirdly, I would say that the text is telling us to grab hold of righteousness. Tiny little phrase in verse 7. Paul says, with the, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And so a couple of weeks back, we talked about when you and I are in Christ, there's a sound effect. Can anybody remember what the sound effect was? No. Okay. You know, you just don't want to be the one to say it out loud because you sound weird. This is on video, you know, and you just made me look bad. There's a sound effect that comes in the original language that when you and I are in Christ, boom, we're in. What happens when you and I are boom in Christ is that we have taken on the right living, the purity, the, the, um, the pleasing of uh, the demands of God the Father. We've taken all those things from Jesus Christ. He has placed them on us. We have in us his righteousness. When you and I are in Christ, we're right with God. 
Another word that supports that is justification that we are, that we are married to. We are, we are put in the right line of God's holiness. This righteousness, what Paul is saying is it's so powerful. It's so effective. It's the only weapon you need for warfare. It sustains you enough in this that, that it's enough for your right hand and for your left. You're not going to be looking around going, Oh no, I'm not ready for this battle. I don't have all the weaponry that I need. He says, This is enough. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, the, the completeness that he has that has been put in the life and the heart of the believer is enough to win the war, but we are looking for all kinds of weapons everywhere else. And yet the righteousness of God is walking in the rightness who is Jesus Christ is enough for this battle. It is our declared status when we are in Christ, but it is also our expected and provided for way of life that we continue to walk forward in righteousness. I mentioned all these commercials and, you know, the sports drinks and the sneakers and everything telling us just to keep pressing on to do all these things to win and, and all these kinds of things. But can you imagine having such a pure desire for endurance that you didn't even ever consider quitting? I feel like everything that is good for me is hard. And nothing ever comes naturally like five in the morning on a Monday. Why do people always have to work out in the morning? It's the deal. Well, if you're like me, by the time the day is done, you don't want to do it. So you got to do it. And if you want to work, you got to, it's crazy. Why is everything that we should be doing so difficult for us, right? So that all the good endeavors I set out for, and often the thought of quitting is always lingering right there. Why would you put yourself through this? Why do you even care about this? Is anybody going to judge you if you don't do this? If you fail, is that really that big of a loss? Come on. There's a lingering doubt, this, this lingering voice of just hang it up. So could you imagine ever having such a pure desire for endurance? What, what seems to be demonstrated here by Paul that you didn't even consider quitting. So where do we get that? What do we tap into? Where does that come from? Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising or disregarding or, or, or really uh, dismantling its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured through the worst thing anybody's ever had to go through. And he endures to the cross and he's victorious over the cross. And that's why we said earlier that this celebration of death that everybody's, you know, fascinated by in our culture at this time of year becomes for us a celebration of life because we have, we, uh, we have the one who conquered the grave and defeated death. So he endured, he endured everything, disregarding all the shame that came with it. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what uh, makes our walk different from everybody else. All the, as, as Gus was praying earlier, all the other phony representations of, of a relationship with God that are out there, why they fall short is because none of them have a deity or a God that moves inside of them and gives them all the tools they ever needed to be right with God. All of these are, are, are short attempts, short falling attempts to be good enough so that they don't get squashed by the deity. But yet Jesus becomes our righteousness, moves into our life, gives us the power, the direction, the illumination to do the things that are right in our life. This is the weapon of righteousness that lives in you. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that there is a danger in 
using the Apostle Paul as our example of endurance. He's a human being. I understand that. There's a danger in using it as our example of purity and, and passion. He was specifically set apart for great trials to be a radical example of the grace of God. So we know that from his calling, from the moment Jesus saved him, he said, but I'm not just saving you to have an okay life. I'm going to use you. You're going to be an example of how greatly uh, applicable my grace is because you're going to need it, pal. This is what God did with Paul. He set him apart and, 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 and made him holy in that sense to, to experience some very extreme circumstances that you and I do not have to endure. But we can't just dismiss our call to the same endurance because we aren't the apostle, the apostle Paul, or we won't be an apostle, or we won't write more Bible because it won't be written. If God is big enough and is sufficient enough for Paul's trials, then he is more than enough for ours. So in our human tendency, what I'm getting at here is that we have a tendency to say, well, that's all great for Paul, but I don't really have that same call in my life. I don't have to sacrifice or struggle quite that much. I mean, I've got my stuff, but not like what's being described about Paul. The, the way that we need to look at this is that, so if God can hold up a man like him through all of those things, then our seemingly lesser things are ready for God's grace as well. I say seemingly because there is a warning that needs to go out to our exaggeration generation. That our smallest of ailments become the thing that just throw us for a loop, Right? I, I look at the um, the endurance and the bravery of soldiers from wars gone by in previous generations in World War One and Two, and I'm going, man, we are not those people anymore, are we? The the uh, the determination to lay your life down because it's right to do, not because it has some added benefit, but because it's right to do. We're so far removed from that kind of mindset and that kind of thinking that even the smallest of plagues now become everybody's issue. You all have to know how much I'm suffering. So a warning goes out to an exaggeration generation that says, look, the, the Lord is, is got righteousness. He's got grace for real trials. And you need to look at a life of somebody like Paul and be like, okay, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But for many in this room, you're not exaggerating. Many of you in this room, maybe you haven't been called to, to get dragged through the mud like the Apostle Paul, but you're going through your own amount of suffering for sure. And even from a person to a person, we'd look and go, I don't know how you're holding up. That's really tough. If we had the time to go through everybody's life, there'd be something that would come to the surface. We'd all be like, that is hard. So find hope in the fact that God has held up a man like Paul and has that same grace and endurance to give to you. What was Paul's focus? I think we find it in verses 8 through 10. The last encouragement here is to desire a better reputation. It's a little bit weird in church. We're not supposed to talk about wanting reputation for this and that. But if we, if we redefine it, because our definition of a good reputation needs a major overhaul, if we re redefine this for the things of Christ and see through Paul's life what he was going through, then it should be on us to desire a better reputation. He says, I have endured, I have, I have pursued purity, I have lived passionately through what? Through honor and dishonor? through slander and praise. 
We, the apostles, were treated as imposters, but we're not lying. We're true. As unknown, nobody knows who you are. Well, funny, because everyone's talking about me. He says, and yet well-known. As dying, and behold, ta-da, here we are. You left me for dead. He was literally left for dead outside of one of the cities and kind of came to and brushed the dust off and said, we got more work to do and went back. It's quite an obituary we might be reading if this were his. As punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You think I'm walking around moping. You think I'm just down in the mouth from all that I'm going through, but I am always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many truly rich. Not monetarily rich, but rich in the things that money can't buy. Rich in the things that success can't yield. As having nothing, and this is what helps me in, uh, inform me of what he meant by rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul says, I'm being regarded as someone who doesn't have anything, someone who's, who's got dishonor, somebody who's a liar and imposter, yet I've got everything that you're accusing me of not having. It mattered to Paul what they thought of him, not so that he would get the applause and the pat on the back, but that his savior would get the credit for all the work that he was doing, holding him up through honor and dishonor, through, through false accusations, through sorrow, through destitution, all of those things. If he endures those things well, his savior gets the credit. Now, I know there's several different types of listeners in the room this morning. So I want to address the few that I can, I can think of and see if any of these hit home. You might be sitting here kind of figuratively arms folded and in a huff, listening to my gibberish about living for other people and being available for others to see you and caring about such things and saying, I don't have it in me anymore. People have let me down. I'm sick of looking out for them. I don't want to live for them anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm fine by myself. That's a posture that we see often in our culture. We see it sadly sometimes in the church. My response would be not only is that a warning response because you're going to find yourself if you're not already, you're going to find yourself in great isolation. But my response would be a little bit more tender from the, from the cross. Jesus could have said the same thing to you. You don't get much more of an inconvenience than being celebrated and worshiped in heaven to come down and be born as a human, to have them pull your beard and punch your head and crucify you on a cross. He didn't have that attitude. All of us, the scripture says, all of us have done our own thing. We've, we've turned uh, to do our own thing. We've rejected the one who sacrificed. We all had that same attitude that people have to you right now. That isn't where we're stuck. That isn't where we need to stay. Some of you might say, look, I've got enough to worry about. I know I kind of want to be available. I want to help other people. I want to serve more. But I've got my own laundry list of issues. I can't get out of my own way. This legacy building that we're talking about, though, my caution to you is that building a legacy is happening in the now. People are recording the impression of you. People are following the example. People are looking to you based on what you're doing now, not the intentions you're offering for later. We don't read eulogies at the, uh, at the funeral and say, doggone it, the person was a real jerk, but I know he had good intentions. And if we had just had more time with him, I'm sure he would have turned it around. We don't do that. We struggle to find what's a good thing we can say. 
Legacies are built in the now, not the later. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're like, oh, I'm not rebellious to that. I'm trying. I don't think it's getting noticed. I don't know if I've got the energy to keep going. It's important for you in that situation to learn the difference between being a people pleaser and a people lover. We often confuse those two things because we do love being around people. But so often in the what's underlying a people pleasing personality or a motive or a, an idol is what the scriptures would call that is the need to get that affection returned, the need to be recognized as that good person for your friends or your family. And that becomes a burden to bear on its own. It becomes a weight that you're, it's hard to get out from under. When we focus on loving people, my broken record is, is that love is doing the best for the one you're trying to love. What do they need? Not what do you need out of it? And that becomes a great freedom to the person who is crushed under the weight of that people-pleasing struggle. But maybe some of you are here and you're saying, I'm, I think I'm trying to be this person you're describing. I, I try to let um, my light shine before men as the gospel calls me to. But I'm a little nervous because I don't want to be arrogant or self-focused. We've done a lot of building up the life of Paul in this message today and talking about what a great man he is and all that stuff. Isn't that a little arrogant? Isn't it a little self-centered for us as Christians to be focused on? And it's a yes and no kind of answer. It can become that for sure. I've been around some people that are doing all the right things, seemingly, and they want you to know it, right? And you know that person. They always pray the best. They give the most. They serve the longest, all those kinds of things, and they want you to know it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about becoming a walking billboard for your own virtues. We had already dismissed that, that if it's the work of the Holy Spirit, he will shine through you. You need to see your life as being poured out like an offering, not some grand gesture. When you're willing to let your life be on display as an offering, you're not so quick to cover up the ugly parts either. You're not so quick to be like, well, I don't want you to see that. I want you to think of me as a super saint. But to help letting people see that you're in need of grace and you need repair and restoration like anybody else, that's what we're talking about as the heart of this text. So a few simple suggestions as we close our time that we would take each day, dedicate each day to burn before others, that we would light up so that our light would shine before men. Maybe it's a simple prayer that starts every day off like this. Lord, use me in any way that others need to see today. Not use me in a way that makes me look better. Use me in a way that others need to see today. For those of you that are going through the kind of thing that you're going to need a lot of endurance to survive, identify that one thing that is dragging you down, that's holding you back, that you don't think you can fight through it and put on it the face of somebody who needs to see you succeed. This is the indication I'm getting from Paul is that he was okay with human eyes holding him accountable and watching him go through this. He was doing it so that they wouldn't be discouraged. So maybe you need to put somebody's face on your trial that you don't want to let down. And lastly, I would ask you to consider opening your life up a little bit to get out of your own routine. I'm speaking to some people, not everybody here, but this kind of thing happens to me every once in a while. It happens to me more than I do, and, I, and I'm convicted by that. Uh, something as simple as being in the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts, you know, getting a bottle of water. That's what I get there. And I get up to the window, and somebody says, don't worry about it, it's already been paid for. 
And I'm looking to see if it's one of you. I'm looking up in there, you know, can't recognize a person. I'm frustrated and blessed all at the same time. So I want to say thank you. But, but a simple gesture, we used to call it back in like the 70s and 80s, you know, the random acts of kindness in this or something, senseless acts of beauty or something like that. I'm just talking about being a Christian, opening your eyes to the world around you. And, 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 it, and it hits, the rubber meets the road in something like the drive-thru because you're there at 7.30 in the morning just thinking about what kind of a day am I going to have? I don't know if I can do this, especially not before coffee. And I don't know if you've ever had that guy that's at this Dunkin' Donuts is like, good morning, how are you? It's like, tone it down, you know? I'm buying the coffee, not you, mister. Oh my gosh, is that guy on fire? And so you you get there and, and uh, you know, you're, you're just thinking about your own little world. That's our danger. So doing these little things that just kind of open me up to the reality that other people could be watching, other people need a blessing from me, this starts to permeate through our families, through our workplaces, through our church. If I asked you all to stand up and shake hands, but the rule was you're going to meet somebody new, meet somebody you've never, you've never found out what their name is. And I got you all back. I said, how many of you met somebody new? Just about everybody's hand would go up. That shouldn't be, is my point. That we're not going to know everybody in here, but we're going to know a lot of somebodies. So this is a room of friendlies. You know, we, we know each other. For the most part, we kind of agree on a lot of the major categories. This isn't a hostile environment for most of us. And yet it's difficult for us to open up our tunnel vision. Like Paul says, open wide your hearts and share this life with other people. Be inconvenienced, be brought through it. Paul is saying, I did this so that you would be encouraged that you wouldn't quit. Will you be willing to do the same thing? Now you're a friendly bunch. Don't think I just beat up on you. I, my face, I told Chris last week, my face hurts from smiling after Sundays. Everyone's pretty happy, but we're nervous, aren't we? It's hard to meet somebody new. Maybe that's your challenge before you even leave these doors this morning. Find out, meet somebody new before you leave. All right, let's stand. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Lord, thank you so much. Father, for guiding us that you don't walk away from us when we mess it up the first time. So be pleased with your people this morning. God, bless the efforts that we bring before you as an offering to do just a little bit more for your kingdom. Bless those things exponentially. They're very minor inputs that we have into your world, Lord, and yet you can do so much more with them through the Spirit. So we offer our lives up to you, Lord, even if in measure in the best way that you have shown us that we can obey today. Lord, help us to do those things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.